Welcome to the Firearms Trainers Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. This is Season 5, Episodes 13, published on May 30th, 2023. In this episode, we'll be talking with Police Chief Tom Sinan about mental health and addiction. I'm your host, Rob Beckman. Sit back, open your mind, and get ready for this week's episode. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Firearms Trainers Association. Visit their website, ftaprotect.com, to learn more about their instructor coverage they offer and their competitive pricing. As a certified instructor, you can apply for FTA coverage. And remember, as a listener to the podcast, you get 10% off your policy entering promo code FTP10 at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by the team at Mountain Man Medical. Responsible fire instructors have trauma medical gear on the range and are trained to use it. Mountain Man Medical provides the highest quality name brand medical gear on the market at a guaranteed lowest price. Check out the Wind River Kit, especially designed for firearm instructors to have at the range. The Yellowstone is perfect to have on your belt or in your bag anywhere you go. Learn more at mountainmanmedical.com and scroll to the bottom and click on available discounts to learn how firearm instructors can save 15% off the already guaranteed lowest prices on the market. And don't forget to click on the training link to take the emergency trauma response video course for free. Get the right gear and the right training at the best price anywhere on mountainmanmedical.com. We bring this podcast, support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every fire instructor in America that dedicates time, energy to making gun owners more knowledgeable. Today, we're joined by Chief Tom Sinan from Newtown Police Department and the Addiction Response Coalition. Welcome, Chief. Thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing with our listeners. Hey, thanks for having me, Rob. I really appreciate it. Uh, well, before we dive into the questions I have for you today, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the, your background and what brings you here today? Yeah, so I'm a Marine Corps veteran. I'm a 30-year police veteran, been police chief for Newtown Police Department for about 17 years. Uh, my career kind of took a different turn. I'm also a SWAT veteran, spent 10 years on the Hamilton County Regional SWAT team, was a team leader there. Um, very much down this normal, typical police police path of law enforcement, undercover drug work for a while, SWAT team, and then my career and life took a turn after I'd seen an entire family in my community die from addiction, a mother and all three of her sons deal with the third generation. So my new generation of officers are dealing with the third generation of the same family with addiction. Uh, that had a huge impact on me. And I helped form the, well, at the time we called the Hamilton County Heroin Coalition, started with about a dozen members. It's now called the Hamilton County Addiction Response Coalition. We have about four to five, 400 to 500 individuals and over 150 separate organizations working uh, in this community to deal with this chronic condition of addiction. And from that, I've been able to testify in front of the U.S. Senate about the impacts of synthetic opiates like fentanyl and carfentanil on the United States. Joined President Clinton at Johns Hopkins University as one of the panelists. Uh, I My work and career with the opiate epidemic and policing is archived in the National Law Enforcement Museum in Washington, D.C. So have have had quite a career and and accomplished quite a bit and wanting to make a difference in the world. And it's kind of weird how a tragedy kind of did that, but that's what ends up happening is usually there's a tragedy that kind of sends your life in a different direction and gives you a mission. And that ended up being my mission. Well, definitely. And uh, I've been following you on social media for the last uh, couple of years as you've uh, 
grown the addiction response coalition and uh, you have a new podcast now called hard corners which uh, many of our listeners probably can identify with you're a very well-known uh, fire instructor and such so you've you, you know that standpoint so i think it'd be it's going to be a good conversation today so my first question for you tom uh can you just kind of level set us what is addiction because hear a lot of different hear it thrown around a lot of times and one of the things i always like to do is try to make sure we're all talking about the same thing yeah it is a complex human condition and i learned a lot from a physician a doctor who was an addiction specialist after the family died i was kind of searching for some answers on how we could deal with addiction differently it felt from a law enforcement perspective it was challenging because my only tools to deal with addiction were gun taser handcuff and jail and we had taken the last brother to the jail after he had overdosed. Uh, our thought, we couldn't get him into treatment. He didn't want help at the time. It, I understand addiction a little bit better now that the familiarity of despair is just as powerful as that fear of hope. And we took him to jail trying to keep him alive for one more night. We accomplished our mission. He stayed alive for one more night. And it really made me dig deeper into what addiction is. And for me, it is a chronic mental medical health condition. It is not a matter of willpower. It literally changes the brain. There's uh, science and research that shows that the frontal cortex uh, does not become as active and your fear and fight and flight response becomes more active and your body starts reacting to it. And it can tie into some mental health issues like anxiety, depression, PTSD, trauma. Uh, we understand too with addiction that generally you need one of three things, genetics, uh, environment, and your and basically the the way your brain's made up your physical aspect can make whether or not you're going to be addicted generational trauma has a role to play in that so addiction if it's a simplified term for me a chronic mental medical health condition it's not a matter of character matter not a matter of willpower but is an actual physical and mental condition yes because i know um you know from addicts that i've read about you know you've got some people that are you know high-priced attorneys that you know get addicted you've got other ones that are homeless that are addicted which i think a lot of times you know that's what people always identify it with and right. they don't always realize that you know addiction can hit anybody anywhere um it's just like mental health i mean mental health um issues can be any gender any race any you know, socioeconomic uh, situation too and that's where you got to keep your eyes open for you know what it is and address it appropriately well, well think of one of the most addictive substances alcohol mm -hmm. now a lot of times we look at someone quote unquote being an alcoholic and we don't necessarily tie that to addiction but it is the same thing you become dependent on this substance that then kind of has this negative impact on your everyday life, whether it is trouble in relationships, work, family, whatever it may be. The thing, I t fentanyl really changed the game for a lot of things. And when, to your point, we look at fentanyl and overdoses and say, well, that's addiction. There's nothing else that could be addictive. Well, prescription pills were definitely addictive. Alcohol is definitely addictive. They all have negative experiences on that person. I think where fentanyl really changed things was the impact that negative consequence was pretty much immediate. It could be an overdose or a death. And when you see those numbers as high as they are, over 100,000 Americans lost their lives to an overdose, the vast majority fentanyl. However, there are even more people that lose their lives to alcohol. But often that is a long-term condition. It's still a chronic mental medical health condition. 
a lot of times people are using it to soothe some type of mental issue or they feel there's some kind of void and they become reliant on that substance to kind of cope. It's a coping mechanism. It's just when it comes to fentanyl, we see it almost immediately. Whereas some of these longer terms addictions, which could be alcohol, cigarettes, food, all these things can become an addiction. And that's what's really changed my view about addiction. There's a lot of substances we rely on, whether it is our body becomes physically dependent upon it or we're using it to cope. So there's a lot of things that go into addiction. So you hit it on the head. It's not just one stereotype. There's many different versions of it. Mm -hmm. Question for, uh, for you is you touched on a little bit, but I want to dive a little bit deeper on it. When it comes to addiction, does it mean that they've got other mental health conditions or can they have other mental health conditions? They can. And some of it, it may not be necessarily that it could be some type of trauma. And, you know, I was thinking about this. When we talk about mental health, we seem to lump it into this one big category. And I don't have a good definition for mental health, to be honest, because how many people struggle with, uh, they could have a temporary, we'll call it a mental health issue, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a parent, that grief, you're going through some type of depressive moment. I'll, I'll, I'll often, when you're talking about grief and death, is that mental health, maybe temporarily, or is mental health a long-term condition where you actually got diagnosed and it's in the DSM and a counselor or psychiatrist has diagnosed you with that? Or is mental health that fit of rage on a road rage incident or you get into a fight? That may be that you didn't regulate your emotions. So mental health is such a broad term, addiction such a broad term that we often put it in everyone into a certain category. I think it can be a multitude of things. It can be that diagnosis where you've had that long-term condition, or you're dealing with some type of issue. It could be that sudden loss of a job, loss of a loved one that puts you into that downspin, and you get into depression. It could be PTSD, where you're dealing with something that was either a traumatic incident right there on the spot or over years. So mental health and addiction is very complex, and I, I'd like to describe it that way. I like to describe it as complex because then we can get into the layers and have a better understanding instead of just one simple label and then kind of discounting people. The human experience is very complex and we all go through ups and downs. What you and I might think is just a simple struggle or a short-term struggle may not be for someone else. So it's very challenging to narrow it down. And I think that's my kind of concern when we talk about addiction or we talk about violence or shootings or whatever it may be, we tend to lump things into one category. And I think that's why we have trouble figuring out how to find a solution is because really it's multi-layered. We talk a lot about it in the classes when we, when I was doing my instructing with shooting, we talked about a lot on SWAT is you try to simplify as much as you can, but really that's only immediate processing. It's not necessarily long-term processing or problem solving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it in, the, in regular healthcare, you go into healthcare and you got a broken bone, you've got a heart attack, you've got, you know, you, you've, you've got, you know, a laceration, something along those lines where they can put it in a very broad category and then treat it. You know, they, you know, yeah, they probably do a hundred different things for heart attacks, but when you tell somebody a heart attack, everybody's like, oh, okay, yeah, I understand that. But when you say mental health, mental health is so so vast and you know it can be depression it can be anxiety it can be you know temporary it could be permanent um you know it could you know even get to the point of chemical imbalance to where you need to go and see an actual doctor to be diagnosed uh with it and that's where it gets very um challenging because it's not as easy as just one label it's one label with but this 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 contributes to it 
You're spot on. And you break your arm, you go to an ER, they stabilize you. And then you, if you have to have surgery, you get surgery. And then you go to physical therapy and they say six to eight weeks of this. And you have a schedule. Six to eight months, you should be healed. You should be using your limb again. You can't see the brain and you can't see when it's bruised. You can't see when it's injured. And what I may take as something that's traumatic to me may not be for you. And a lot of that has to do with your experiences, how you grew up, your genetics, your environment, trauma that you experienced or may not have experienced. So you hit it on the head. It's hard, number one, to diagnose it. It's hard necessarily to pinpoint it to one cause and it's different for so many people and it's not something you can see. And you, to your point, you cannot go to the ER and go, I'm having this issue. How do I, when do I go to therapy and how long will it take and when's my end date? There is no necessarily end date. And it might be something that you can work through therapy, given coping mechanisms, recognizing triggers, given the ability to regulate through those triggers, or it could be something that you deal with for the rest of your life. It is very challenging when we're talking about these complex issues. And I, I like the way you, that you describe that. And it's very true. It is very complex. It's multi-layered and it can be different for different people. Mm-hmm. As firearm instructors, um, one, one of the things I'm always kind of on, on the outlook for and such is when people come to my class, I realize that they are there for multitude of reasons. Some of them are there because they're interested in guns. They want to know how to use them safely. Some of them are there because they've had a traumatic experience and they want to be able to defend themselves. Um, other ones, I'm not sure exactly why they're there. And one of the things I do, you know, I try to talk to everybody, you know, before they come to class, before we get on the range, before, you know, before it gets real serious. What are your suggestions for instructors on how to kind of identify people that might have, you know, mental health or, or be in crisis, those, those types of things? Yeah, I don't know if I have necessarily a one, two, three or an ABC that you go through a checklist that you can go down the list and figure out what someone's thinking or how they're feeling or if they have some type of issue. But I think you hit it on the head. It is getting to know the people that you're teaching, getting to know the students, talk to them. Uh, I often talk about some of the experiences I dealt with on SWAT or whether it was in policing, kind of open up a little bit. And then to your point, like you talked about, you go to each person, find out why they want to do this. What is going on in their life? Open up those channels in that conversation. And then that's really you. We were talking about this before we started recording. You hit it on the head. Ask questions. The more questions you ask and the more that you allow yourself to be open up to people and tell them why you do. Why am I teaching this class? Why am I instructing? What are some of the things I've seen? It gives people that opportunity to open up and maybe that opening up, the asking the questions opening that channel allows for someone to say something that makes you think, wait a minute, could there be something here? And then it is a conversation that maybe you can offer resources or you can dig a little bit deeper or you can connect them to other people. I've not had an experience. I've obviously had experiences in my instructing, talking to people, telling about my own things that I've gone through life with or my own experiences like a seven SWAT or in policing. And I've had people come up and talk about their own experiences. And they've really opened up about some of it has been traumatic. Some of it is just horrible what they went through. I'm not necessarily connecting it to that's why they wanted a gun. But, you know, another part of this is sometimes people go to learn how to shoot to feel empowered. They feel powerless powerless in their lives. And this gives them an opportunity, whether it's real or perceived, to feel empowered And I've had a lot of people come to my classes that, especially when we talked about CCW or I get into the OODA loop, the observe, orient, side, and act, 
how the brain kind of processes information. And some say, I just wanted to go through a class just to understand shooting, to kind of feel what it was like to shoot a gun, to feel that power, and then decide whether I wanted to carry it or not. But I think to simplify your question, if you hit it on the head, ask questions, be engaged with your student students, open up, talk about some of your experiences so that that floor's opened up a little bit. And the more that you get students coming back and training, the more you'll find that they'll open up about their personal lives. And really, a lot of times, it's just a discussion. And, and you know this, you probably hung after class and talked to people about their personal lives. And it's just that ability to connect human to human that often gives you some of that insight, or it might be that ability, that opportunity where someone feels comfortable talking to you and you never know, maybe it changed their mind about something. Maybe it made them think about things. And maybe that's that one conversation, that connected connection with that person that kind of made a difference in their lives. Mm -hmm. One one of the things I go along when I teach new instructors about, you know, everybody's worried about the hardware. You know, go along, check check out the students' guns. Make sure they got the right right caliber ammo. Make sure you know they that it's you know clean. Make sure it's operational. Those those type of things. But I also bring up to tell people, you know, that's the time to go along and have that quick discussion. You know, was his grandpa's guns? You know, because there's that's a pretty cool conversation. Or did they just pick it up last night at the gun shop? You know, those types of things. You know, what what made them go out to the gun shop last night and buy something? Uh, quickly because those are kind of those um, ways that you can find a little bit more out about why they're in class and maybe you know from a from a purely instruction standpoint if you know that they're there to learn something specific maybe you can tailor and give them a little bit more instruction to to help them out at the same time if they're having some mental health conditions uh crisis or something along those lines again it's a lot of times people just don't know where to turn to if you, if i've got a broken arm like we were talking about what do i do i go to the emergency room right if i go along and have a mental health crisis you know i get laid off from work i feel like you know that things are terrible or you know family member passed away any number of things that people can identify with and knowing just how devastating that can be you know some people pop back right away other people have a severe problem there is no you know come here for you know anxiety issues or emergency room uh, for mental health um i know that i know mental health uh emergency rooms do uh do exist but honestly i can't even tell you where there where there's one in, in hamlin county right now yeah, UC would probably be that one for the emergencies. And there's and Children's Hospital has a really good one for children. That's they good. are fantastic. And there's there are some resources like that. But you made me think when you were talking, Rob, and I have no science behind this. It's just a anecdotal and it is personal experience. There's been a phenomenon when people have in my community have committed suicide. Sometimes the family members want that weapon back. Um I, we by law we have to give it back we cannot hold it um and i don't know what that attachment is to that weapon i think some of it like you talked about is um it is a symbol of remembrance of that person but we also know that in families with suicide with some of this trauma that can be repeated and you do have an increased chance of mental health issues when you grow up in a home with drug abuse with mental health um, but we do see this phenomenon where people want a weapon back of a loved one that committed suicide. And I'm just thinking, you know, I'm just going down, like you talked about before, going down the rabbit hole. I'm just going down the rabbit hole a little bit. And if I'm taking your theory of asking questions while you're doing some of this, checking hardware, going over instructions, 
working with somebody, you know, this, a lot of times people can't load a magazine. I spent a lot of time helping someone load a magazine and just talking. And wouldn't mm-hmm. that be a fantastic opportunity to find out a little bit about this weapon? Like you said, is this my grandfather's? Did he use it in World War II? Is this a fair family heirloom? Or was this something that was used by a family member that they did harm to themselves? And and then open up that conversation with that person. So, yeah, it is a little bit of a, a phenomenon that I have not necessarily understood the reasons why, because I've not personally experienced it. But we do get several people that want the weapon back. And there's been times where they've gone uh, several years without asking for the weapon and then out of nowhere want that weapon back. Um, and it was a family, sometimes a family weapon or something that a father or grandfather purchased that someone else used. So that would at least would be an opportunity to open up that channel and that conversation to find out what that person's thinking or what what is the purpose of them coming to that class. And again, I don't have an easy checklist that if someone says, A, go do X, Y, Z, but at least it opens up a little bit of that conversation and gives you an opportunity to dig a little bit deeper or at least make that personal connection. I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but did any of the people that asked for the weapons back, did they go along want it back so they could destroy it and know that it was, you know, taken care of, or was it just because they had a, you know, an attachment to it? An attachment to it. I've not known anyone go back and destroy the weapon. Um, And I've seen, we've had a couple incidences of generational suicide where the same type of weapon has been tried or used. Um, So, I, th- I don't know. I think some of it is there's this attachment and memory to this person. Some of it is, as you pointed out, we grow up, especially people our age and older than us, we grew up with our families handing down weapons and those become part of the family and the identity to the family. So I'm not sure if some of that is a fair family heirloom and I want that back or if it is a memory of my loved one that I lost used this. Um, but it is something we have seen. And like I said, I have no research, no data on it. It's just personal experience of people coming back and asking for those weapons. So I, I just think what you talked about being an instructor, and I'm thinking about my time on the range teaching people, it is, man, you talk about someone being vulnerable. A lot of people, unless they're experienced shooters, first time shooting, they're nervous. They're, they really mm-hmm. are trusting you. And they do open up quite a bit about why they're there, what's going on in their life. Like you said, it could be someone from a domestic violence situation, a stalking situation. It could be someone that was robbed before. It could be someone that just watches the news and is worried about someone breaking into their home. But you really get people vulnerable that open up and want to have these conversations with you because they're looking at you as the instructor, the expert the person that's going to help make them feel safe during that time. And when you make someone physically safe, feel that way, a lot of times you make them feel mentally safe that they can open up and talk to you. I I think, go back to your original question. I think the simple answer is listen. Ask questions, listen, open up those conversations, and you'll get a little bit more insight into why people are are taking on a class or wanting to shoot and Mm -hmm. if there's other issues there. Yeah, that's a here, great here, point. Here, here's an example I have that I found out when I asked those kind of questions at the beginning of a class. I had a lady who had had the, her garage burglarized three times previously, 
and she was taking the class so that she could go along and the next time they broke into, into her garage run outside and um confront the burglar and you know put a stop to it you know she wanted mm-hmm. she wanted to be john wayne and and you know right the wrongs of society but at the same time i, I had to go back and take us take a deep breath and try to unravel you know what she thought because you know she watches the police dramas on tvs and the movies and everything else like that and the good guys always come out on top right. and then i had to go along and start explaining to her that they're stealing a 200 lawnmower and you're leaving the safety of your house you are going along they're stealing a hundred dollar chainsaw and you're leaving your family vulnerable inside the house and you know as i went through these different situations you know she finally came to the realization looked at me and said you don't think i should go outside and it's like <laughs> no i don't because of all these because th- everything you hold uh, hold dear to yourself is in your house not in your garage i'm going to be pissed off just like anybody else if somebody steals something from me but at the same time you've got to realize that it's a lot better to be pissed off than to go to the hospital because you mis you misjudge the situation instead of one person there that happened to be a gang of three or four people or go along and instead of you know being visited at the hospital you get visited at the morgue and all of a sudden you know start start making sense to where she was a little frustrated that i didn't give her you know just go out and you know right the wrongs of society but you've got to you've got to really help the students to kind of process the situation because you know you've you've responded to a lot of situations you know especially when it's dark and you don't know what you're walking into you know you get your buddies backing you up and doing everything else like that but you know you i mean they could be you know two minutes away from you but it still seems like an hour if you're sitting there and you're looking at somebody through a flashlight lens and they're not trying to be cooperative with you you're sitting there saying okay how's this going to go down and you know i still got a minute and a half before they before i'm backup arrives it's uh that's a long time you know, we talked about this a lot when we were doing CCW or any kind of self-defense shooting classes is, look, man, I'm a cop for 30 years. I was SWAT for 10 years, U.S. Marshals Fugitive Task Force for a year. And I'm going to tell you, I have 30 years of oh shit moments. I considered, quote unquote, an expert, highly trained, especially from the SWAT perspective, that, like we talked about the hard corners and soft corners and sliced. This is what I did for a living for 10 years, did thousands of these room searches. And I'm telling you, there was a ton of times on SWAT, we would do an operation and it wasn't just me. It was many of us going, oh, shit, <laughs> we made it like that was such a surprise. And I, when I was teaching some of my students, I always talked about, to your point, don't go chasing people to go up in your room, lock the room, defend your room or there, defend your family from up there, make them come to you because I described it. When someone, when I, when I was on the street and I pulled people over and, and asked them how many beers they had, they would always, you always multiplied it. So if they said they had one, you get two. And then they go, yeah, I had two. No, you had four. Okay. I had four. No, you had eight. I, t- I used to instruct my students when there's one asshole, you always multiply them. One asshole is two assholes, two assholes, four, four is eight. You got to make sure that you're constantly uh, vigilant and looking for that next threat. And to your point, when you expose yourself, you're exposing yourself to the unknown and the threat. And there was a case in Las Vegas years ago of two officers in CC Pizza, uh, a couple that had left the Bundy Ranch. They, They were extreme for the Bundys because they wanted to actually start a war where the Bundys weren't doing that. They had their own reasons for doing whatever they were doing. But these two people wanted to start a war with the government. 
walked in, shot two Las Vegas police officers in the head while they were having lunch, walked across the street into a Walmart. Their intent was to get into a gun battle with police, start this big war with police. Um, there was a CCW carrier there who confronted one of the, the, the couple and didn't realize there was a second person. That second person walked up and killed him. So you have to understand that. And this is what you learn from SWAT and military days is making sure you know where cover is. Always thinking about your next step. Always thinking about your threats and multiplying those threats and trying to put yourself in the best defensive position you can be. I'm a firm believer of Sun Tzu's art of war. That guy had it figured out. If you can do things to make the quote unquote enemy or the opponent or whoever it is or the threat come towards you and give you the tactical advantage, you win. And often on SWAT, we couldn't do that because we were going into a home. Although we had intelligence, we had training. Often what we tried to do was to create as much confusion from the beginning as we could, hitting multiple doors at the same time, 20, 30 police officers yelling SWAT search warrant, SWAT search warrant, get on the ground flashbangs, all these tools that we had to try to disrupt that thought process enough. And plus you have an entire team of people. And even then you can get caught off guard. There was many situations, like I said, we were like, oh man, we could not see that coming. So think about like you talk about that individual. I'm with you. Don't leave the house. Don't confront people. The gun battle you always win is the one you never get into. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell you, if you get into a draw in a gun battle, you both lose. So if I even and we talked about it, uh, some of the training I did, even as a SWAT officer, police officer, someone that's been shooting since I was five, six, seven years old. If my house was broken into, I would not be going searching it. I would not be confronting people. I would have myself in a room. I have alarm systems. I lock doors. I make barriers set up so I get enough attention ahead of time. I would not be going confronting that person. I'm going to let them come to me and give me the tactical advantage. So, you know, those are some of the things that you can talk about too in class and and especially those one-on-one conversations. I, I tell you some of probably the most important training and you probably have the same experience is when you take a break. Mm-hmm. That's when people come up and ask questions and talk to you. And that's when I talk about this stuff and it makes me think, okay, I'm going to tell the entire class this. So now you hit it on the head. The, the police and SWAT experience has given me a lot of insight in no matter how trained you are, how badass you think you are, confident you are, you don't know the circumstance. You're always at a disadvantage. And we know action beats reaction. I want to flip that around and either minimize the reaction time or flip it completely around where I can take action versus the reaction. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And uh, as fire instructors, you know, we've got to make sure we're, you know, identifying risks and things like that as far in advance as possible. And that's where, like I said, that was, you know, class I did several years ago and I frustrated that student. I know that, but at the same time, hopefully she took away from it and she's alive today because I gave her good advice on what to do and how to be there for her family. And those are all, you know, what it really comes down to why, why we do what we do. Yeah. And it's really about being honest. And again, if we're going to, you know, it's a perfect segue into from the addiction mental health. If we're going to talk about those being complex, we have to tell the layers of the complexity of gunfights, the complexity of threats. It's not like on TV. You know this. Your listeners know this. It's not like it is on TV. You don't always have the advantage. You may be caught off guard. It is more than carrying a gun. 
It is being mentally prepared when you're going out in the public. It's being aware, knowing your surroundings. One of the best training classes I ever took was with the Cincinnati Police Department. It was instructor Todd Bruner who came to work with us for a while. He's retired now. but And it literally saved my life a few weeks later. Um, Todd always talked about when you're going to a situation or a call, thinking one, two, three, four steps ahead. And I got a call. It was actually in another community. And it was a person that fired shots at his mother with a shotgun. I was probably the 10th or 11th officer on the scene. I got out of the car, I had a bad feeling, and I thought about Todd's words of always think of your next step. Where's your next place of cover? So I went to a tree. I then went to another tree. And as soon as I stepped out from the next tree, I heard the shotgun rack. And I went behind a tree and I looked over and there was the guy on the porch the entire time with a shotgun as several officers had walked right on by. And I thought about and I confronted him and it ended up being a standoff. Luckily, ended up peacefully. But Todd's training of knowing where your next position is going to be, thinking ahead. If you have that ability to slow things down, to slow it down, we talked a lot about that on SWAT, is part of our tactic was if we could, to slow a situation down and think about where my next step is going to be. Where is my cover? Where can I retreat to? Where am I going to rally and get back up? As a civilian, it is extremely important that it's not just a matter of carrying a gun because you never know when you get to get caught off guard. Cops have been caught off guard. Military people have been caught off guard. And I'm going to tell you from an operational standpoint, your plans never go as expected. One of the best stories, if you listen to some of the SEAL guys talking about searching for a high value target and a commander comes up and they're at the front door and he actually accidentally leans on the door and hits the doorbell and the guy answers the door and the team's like, oh, okay, we got him. That's the way it works. <laughs> your plans as a team leader, I was always like, here's the plan. What do you think of my plan? Or like, oh, screw your plan. I'm like, yeah, screw my plan. That was just a foundation. That was if things went bad, that's where we always went to the base. Really what it was about was expecting the unexpected. Look where your next cover was. Like you talked about hard corners. Look where your hard corners are. That's the danger. You can What you can see is not necessarily the danger. It's, not, it's what you cannot see. So teaching civilians that is having that mentality of not just carrying a gun, but be mentally prepared. I talk about practicing. And it's not just practicing getting a gun out of the holster. What clothes are you wearing? If you're a woman, are you carrying in a purse? Have you ever practiced getting the gun out of the purse? Have mm-hmm. you ever thought about where if I leave my car and I'm walking to the mall and I do get attacked or someone intervenes, where am I going to take cover? Where can I retreat to? Where is some of my surroundings? If I fire shots, are the people around me? You know, it takes a lot of not just the like you talked about the hardware training, but also your equipment. But it's also what am I wearing and can I know what to do? How do I get my shirt up? We would train with our thumbs and we would take our thumb and pull that shirt all the way up to our chin so that if something gets snagged, we're basically ripping it over that snag. Do most people think about those things? So it really is a mental aspect of not just the gun itself, but having that mental awareness and knowing what to do and having those plans. Where can I take cover? What's my next step of cover? This is what we do in in law enforcement and SWAT to try to keep alive because we know, like we talked about, Plans don't always go as planned. Matter of mm-hmm. fact, they never go as planned. So always have that next step. Exactly. Well, hey, last question. Um, what are some of the resources that you know that instructors, that they come across somebody who either themselves or know somebody with mental health uh, conditions, addictions, things like that, that they can um, go and seek, seek help from? 
Well, a big one is 988, which is for mental health. And you can just call that number and there's resources that can get connected to there. SAMHSA has an entire list of um, mental health resources. For addiction, one of the favorite places I like to refer people to is the Addiction Services Council. And their phone number is 513-281-7422. They are basically, I'm going to put it in real layman terms, are kind of like a broker. They do, they assess where somebody's at. Do they have health insurance? Do they not? What is the addiction? What would be the best path for them and kind of refer them to different resources or a resource that might be able to help them? Uh, They're a fantastic group, 24-7. They're able to, to help people and get them connected. Also, you can go to the Hamilton County Addiction Response Coalition website. You just Google it and click on it. And we have a list of some resources there too. Some treatment facilities, some stuff for mental health, um, along with some stuff for treatment too. So one of our members, one of our pillars for our coalition is the Mental Health and Addictive Services Board. There's a list of some of their resources and access to them and that people can connect to. And if you're not around Hamilton County, Ohio, um, you, I'm sure they probably got similar resources in a lot of the major cities, or at least in the states, that people can Google and find resources for, and or use 988 to find yep. that wherever they are throughout the country. So. Yep, 988 and SAMHSA both are national, and they can also, I think you can link link onto SAMHSA's website, click your state and your region, and they'll be able to tie into some resources that are are local. That's great because like I've said many times on the podcast before, um, you know, mental health is not something where we're all um, immune from having problems with it. Our lives change and uh, our mental health, uh, we may need uh, assistance in order to deal with it. And addiction is just another aspect of that mental health side of things that we need to need to know where to find the resources at. Yeah, and I was thinking too, Rob, when you're talking about that, and and for the instructors too, because a lot of them are former military, former police officers, and and we've all been through our issues, personal struggles, whether it's divorce or death or grief. But those with military and police backgrounds, there is nothing wrong with asking for help. There's nothing wrong with getting therapy. I tell people I've had my own mental health struggles. I go to therapy. And I look at it as I train my body physically. I work out constantly. I eat really well. I jump rope 30 to 45 minutes. I do my cardio. Why would I not want someone to help me and coach me on my mental health and make that the best it can be? Um, so don't be afraid if you're former military or law enforcement to go get help. I look at it as a coach, just like I've had people teach me how to work out. I had people teach me how to shoot. I had mentors on SWAT. Why not have someone that can walk you through, whether it's difficulties or you just want to be mentally the best you can be? You talk about some of these elite teams like Delta Force and SEALs. They are often using some type of mental health. They're tracking how their people are doing. They're often involved in their personal lives. Where are they at in their personal lives? Because they know that can affect a mission. And we did a lot of times on SWAT. We did a lot, as a team leader. It was one of my responsibilities was to check in with my with my people. What's going on in your personal life? Do you need assistance? There's something we can do. Can we refer you to somebody? And in our law enforcement, in, in our police department, my officers have no problem with saying, hey, this case was tough or this is what I'm going through. And it's not always that they're going to counseling or therapy, but it is at least a connection that we can start opening up that conversation and at least open up the channel. So 
I think it doesn't just apply to the people that we're teaching. It also applies to us and it applies to first responders, military instructors. We all are human beings. And we were talking about that before we started. We can have all these different labels, can see each other a different way. But the bottom line is we all have are human beings. We all struggle from time to time. We all have hardships. And even if you're not going through a hardship, I find it extremely fascinating and helpful to have someone walk you through a mental process that allows you to process information better, to see things more realistically, and to be top performing both physically and mentally. Yeah, as you were talking about, you know, Delta Team, other top firm, uh, you know, having mental mental coaches and things like that. One of the things I've picked up in the last couple of years has been a lot of the top sports uh, figures also have mental coaches. Not to say that they're having mental health problems but because they understand that the mental can help them identify you know quarterback identify the balls faster uh or throw the ball they can identify you know the pitchers and hitters and baseball and whatever whatever sport is they understand there's ways just like you go along and you you know power lift in order to strengthen your muscles you can also power lift from a mental perspective to make you see things faster to re- respond faster and be that top athlete that you want to so i think if the top athletes and delta team and seal team and those places are all using it, it's probably not they, there's probably something there to say the least yeah the sports psychologists and think about this one of the sports that uses the most often is golf which no <laughs> one's doing it they're not hitting you they're not throwing things but the anxiety of the millions of dollars and all these people watching you have to hit this little ball exactly where you want it to go and you have to do it for three days four days in a row and they have a lot of sports psychologists and what they're dealing with is anxiety and it, a lot of times it is that anxiety of am i able to do this and you hit it on the head they're rewiring their brain to think differently to react to anxiety differently and i can come full circle with this conversation rob and that is recovery from mental health and recovery from addiction it is rewiring your brain from that fight and flight that fear response the amygdala which constantly keeps you in that survival mode think about hitting the golf ball if you're a high performing athlete that pressure is anxiety how can i rewire my brain so i'm not in fight or flight response i'm not making emotional decisions i'm able to make more conscious decisions and then i can perform better it is the same thing with shooting shooting is a skill it's something that you have to work on and there is anxiety in shooting if you're talking about just competition mm-hmm. let alone an actual life and death shooting you know as we as police officers don't have a very good hit rate in shooting incidents one we're caught off guard it's reaction we're always in reaction mode very rarely action mode but also moving targets anxiety the fear of life and death you literally are dealing with life and death often you're conscious the frontal cortex of the brain is not working if you can train that throughout your time and include it make it encompassing in your training then if an incident happens or you're a competitive shooter to your point you'll perform better same thing with addiction same thing with mental health it's realizing the triggers finding coping mechanisms to deal with them whether it's breathing exercises whether it is another coping mechanism that calms you down or self-regulating if you can do those things you can start working your way towards recovery with mental health recovery with addiction if you're a performance athlete or a shooter you can perform at a higher level than what you normally would it's a great way to wrap things up yeah we kind of came full circle that worked out <laughs> yeah we definitely did well hey tom we've been asking all our uh guests this season to go along and name a place they think that uh two a people should see visit um around our great country got any well, suggestions 
Yeah, I'm going to stick to the military kind of suggestion. And one of my favorite cities to go to is Washington, Washington D.C. I love it because of the history, but also if you get a chance, and if uh, hopefully a lot of people have been there, several war memorials. They are moving. Um, it is very inspiring, and it also makes us reflect on the sacrifices made by people. But also, if you get a chance to see 8th and I, the Marine Corps silent drill team, or the Marine Corps band on the barracks there. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, when you're talking about Marines, I'm a little biased, but that is a sharp group of people. And you talk about structure and discipline and being working as a team. It's a great thing to see. So D.C. for the memorials. If you get a chance to see anything with the Marine Corps, the 8th and I, the barracks there, that's a fantastic thing. And I love the history of D.C. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And uh, that's the first suggestion we've had for D.C. And uh, that's great because I think you can go there and realize, you know, how many people from World War One, World mm-hmm. War Two, Korea, Vietnam yep. Yep. never came back. And yep. that, those are just the people that came back, um, you know, uh, KIA. You, that doesn't mention at all, like we've been talking today, the mental health issues that they had to deal with, you know, for the rest of their lives. And, you know, get back into society and do different things like that. And it really kind of puts a very, um, you know, poignant reminder for all of us that are lucky enough to be living in this country that there are quite a few people that um, have died and sacrificed quite a bit of themselves in order for us to have the freedoms that we have today. And whether you love it or hate it, we still enjoy those freedoms because of those those people. So yeah, great, time, great police, suggestion. Yeah, time Police Memorial Week, the police uh, memorials down there also. And they're down there this week. And unfortunately, we have some officers that are on that wall and there's uh, people from those departments down there. So you're right. You get to honor the people that have sacrificed the most. Definitely. Well, Tom, where can people find more about the uh, which the work you're doing and such with the Hamilton County Addiction Response Coalition? Well, you can go to the Hamilton County, again, the Hamilton County Addiction Response Coalition. Just Google it. It's under the HamiltonCounty.org uh, kind of br- overall branch of the county. But also follow me on social media. I, I post a lot of stuff from the coalition. I post a lot of stuff from whether I'm doing mental health training or addiction stuff. Or when I when I was doing my shooting classes, I post a lot of stuff there. And I'm on Facebook. It's Tom Sinan. Uh, I do some stuff on Instagram, but I'm not much on pictures. I like using words. So LinkedIn, just look up Tom Sinan. It'll be on there too. And then Twitter is T Sinan at 11, I think it is, is my logo. But Google any Google Tom Sinan. And you'll be able to get some links from social media and also some articles I've written or some videos I've done or some stories that have been done with the addiction. And one thing I'll call out because you missed it. You did your TED talk on addictions also, which is another one of those things that's uh, really good to listen to. I did my TED talk and, you know, I'm not, I'm new at this podcast thing. I'm not so good at at promoting this thing too. I've got a podcast. (laughs) It's hard Mm -hmm. corners. Um, it, it, like we talked about before, it's, I had a, a young kid grew up in Newtown said, man, I think he'd be great at a podcast. I wanted nothing to do with a podcast. I'd not listened much to podcast and they wanted to call it soft corners. And I said, man, if I'm going to do a podcast, I'm calling it hard corners because <laughs> that's where the danger is. And we want to get into the tough topics. We want to have these tough conversations. Like you talked about those awkward conversations, the one that make us think. So hard corners podcast, you can find an Apple, Spotify, and also, I'm with a uh, do some contributing a little bit with a multimedia company, postindustrial.com. They have all the podcasts there and several articles I've written about addiction or my experience from law enforcement and tying the human aspects. So, Hard Corners on Apple, Spotify, 
It's Hard Corners with Tom Sinan or postindustrial.com. So I'll get better at this whole promoting thing. Super. Well, Tom, appreciate your time tonight. Very informative. Uh, hopefully our listeners uh, get a lot out of it because uh, as much as I'd like to wave a magic wand and say addiction and mental health is gone tomorrow, we all know it's going to be around uh, as long as humans are around and we need to know how to uh, how to effectively deal with it. So thank Thanks you, Tom. For this conversation. I really appreciate you having it. Thank you. Have a good one, Tom. That's a wrap for this episode. And as I've said many times on the episodes when we talk about mental health, not only do we probably know somebody who's had some mental health crisis in their lives, but we've probably gone through our own at some point. And it's going along knowing, understanding how to identify it and the proper resources to deal with it. You have an interesting topic that you'd like me to talk about. Email me at ftp at concealedcarry.com or leave us a comment on our Facebook page. You can also go to our website and search our previous episodes on mental health. Um, great information to get out there. Great resources as instructors. I really think it's important for us to know what they are so that we can help those people that need them, even if maybe that person is herself from time to time. Also want to go along and remind you to listen to the other Concealed Carry uh, podcasts that are out there. And also join me at the Guardian Conference on September 15th through the 17th. There'll be some world-class trainers there, and it'll be a great three-day event. Visit our sponsors, especially the Farm Trainers Association, and check out their instructor insurance. Establishing your business was your first step. Getting your business off the ground. Next step should be getting insurance coverage with the FTA. Remember to use promo code FTP10 for 10% off at checkout. We bring this podcast support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every fire instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Stay safe, everyone. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.